From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you no-code InsureTech scale-up in Standard raises 37 million. Insurance startups face a credibility crisis. And Geico may have to pay a woman who got an STD in an insured car. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 122. I'm John Bean. Today's show is a new show where we will be bringing all the talking points about the most interesting happenings in insurance and InsureTech from the past few weeks. Joining me today is my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director for Insurance at Google. How are we doing today, Nigel? I'm hot. It's warm out. I'm in New York and it's 84 degrees and the sun, so it's hot. If you want to be hotter and it's very rare, come back to London. (laughs) I'll take your word for it, although I have to say I've seen all the Facebook posts and tweets and whatever else. You can boil an egg or cook an egg on the pavement, apparently. Yeah, we are baking over here, but I'm not one to complain about the weather, certainly in the UK. Next up, we are also accompanied by some amazing guests and joining me in the studio. First up, we have Anton Penner, founder and chief strategy officer of Flock. How are you doing today, Anton? And Flock has been doing some exciting things lately. Can you please give us a recap? Hello, so good to be back here. It's been a while, and I think the last time I was here, we were a fully... Uh, drone-focused company. So we, we were insuring fleets of drones, which are these flying robots. And since we launched a proposition into the commercial motor fleet space, taking all of our learnings in the drone space into commercial motor fleet. So loads of change doing very well in the motor side of things, which I believe we'll talk a little bit about today. Oh, fantastic. And I'm glad to hear it's going so well. We are also joined by Tim Hardcastle, CEO of Instanda. Thanks for being here, Tim. Can you give our listeners a bit of a lowdown on Instanda, please? But wait a second. Don't give us too much because you're the first segment of the show. Okay, I'll keep my powder dry then. So uh, it's great to be here. (laughs) And I love being on any uh, any platform with Nigel. We... uh, we go back away, uh, and I'm hoping that Nigel will be uh, my counterpoint throughout the session because he's he's an industry. Uh, are we allowed to say veteran, Nigel? Now, are you qualified for that? I'm not I, I am definitely I'm not in that category. So I think we've seen, been there, seen there, got the T-shirt, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about Instander and no code and what I think the industry needs in terms of uh, how it should be work- working in in the future. There's so much to do. Well, very good to have you on the show, Tim. Thanks for joining us, and Nigel is definitely a veteran. Oh God. Next up, last but not least, we have Ruth Fox-Blader, partner at Anthemis. Welcome back, Ruth. How are you doing today? And can you give us our listeners a little recap on Anthemis, please? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, always fun to be here. Anthemis is an investment platform focused on changing financial services. Uh, we invest in all sorts of financial services startups, including Flock. Happy to, uh, to join a portfolio company on the show today. Well, welcome back and great to have you on as always. Right, let's get on with the show. So first up, no-code insuretech scale-up in standard raises 37 million. So from UK Tech News, Instanda, a company that provides no-code software tools for the insurance industry, has raised $36.7 million to fund an expansion in Europe, the US and Japan, and the UAE. The London headquartered company will also develop new capabilities for its platform, which lets insurance companies create products without specialist coding knowledge. It does so with a combination of pre-built product libraries that can be adapted for specific insurance providers. Instanda claims this means operators in the insurance space can take products to market within days and weeks. The InsurTech Series B funding round was led by growth equity investment firm Tucker Fund, with additional funds coming from previous Backerdale Ventures. I guess, Tim, 
Over to you. Firstly, a big congratulations. I've got multiple questions, but let's start with, can you give us a bit of basics on Instanda's no-code premise? And really, what will the funding allow you to do that wasn't possible before? Uh, sure. Well, I, I, my finance partners would be um, a little bit upset if I didn't just quietly correct the pronunciation. It's Tosca Fund. Thank um, you. It's all right. <laughs> they're very proud of their name. <laughs> uh, and they're a great partner. And I'll come on to why that is the case, because uh, I think, uh, you know, the marriage between, well, it's actually more than a marriage, because whenever you bring a, a finance partner onto your boardroom table, it's actually much harder to remove said finance partner than it is to get divorced. So the relationship you actually have with your uh, finance partner is a very, um, you know, it's a very long one. Um, and uh, I'll come back on to some of the dynamics around that, particularly in light of the current um, economic meltdown on insurtech valuations. But let me just talk about what was the no-co premise all about. Um, well, when we when we set Insander up, I was a CIO in the insurance industry, uh, so it's not as though I've come to this um, with uh, no 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 knowledge of insurance. Uh, although I was um, like Nigel, I'm a veteran because I was a CIO in other industries, so I had the benefit of looking at uh, technology in many different situations. And simply put. The no-code premise is all about four things. Speed and flexibility. I'll expand that in a minute. Reducing the total cost of ownership. Uh, dealing with inherently, fundamentally, and systemically what you get in insurance is a heterogeneous environment. It's very diverse. It's very, it's very multiplicity. It's very bespoke. And any classical code type solution to that is very painful, expensive, and slow. And fourthly, it's about putting control and governance on the freedom that no code gives you. And that, those four parameters were the, were the foundation of our design philosophy that we put into the platform way back uh, because we, we first started designing the platform actually 10 years ago or thinking about the design 10 years ago and only brought it to market in 2016, which is actually when I met Nigel with his larger glasses then than he has now. And you mentioned about what the funding will allow us to do, I think. Mm. Um, well, there's no, I mean, I, I can completely empathize with smaller companies that are trying to find product market fit. I think what where we are is uh, fundamentally, we took the view that we wanted to prove out the the applicability of the platform and the technology into multiple markets, multiple lines of insurance, which we did before we went for a capital raise. So simply for us, when we were talking to potential capital providers, it was we're now in the situation where we've proved the product market fit. We've shown that we can go into pretty much, whether it's life and health or property and casualty, any scenario and use case and bring value and benefit. So now the drive is with you, the capital partner, is to is to help us uh, with your expertise and obviously capital as well, but to help us scale and drive the business further forward and, and take the, the opportunity for the insurance industry to, to get some great value technology that releases benefit and gives them those four things. It gives them speed, flexibility, it gives them a low TCO, helps them apply it to any situation, and it gives them control and governance. No, it's a fantastic story. And, and for me, I mean, I know the no-code revolution, it, it's been it's been promised for quite a, quite a number of years. And I know in insurance, you know, there was early stalwarts with the likes of Mendex. I know even the likes of Pega have created no-code no solutions. I mean, N Nigel, do you think the no-code revolution, do you think this is going to disrupt the bigger play, the guide wires, the duck creeks of this world and the others? Do, do you see this becoming the the driver for kind of platforms and insurance in the future? Well, first and foremost, congrats, Tim and Derek and the entire team. It's a fantastic output for, for what you guys have done. It's a true testament to where the business has come from. I've loved working with you guys over the years. 
the no code one for me or low code and let's try and differentiate when we come back to that in a second but for me it's not an it's not an or it's always been an and and as customers or, or clients are looking to launch new products to market quickly or adapt and and, and get things out there I think there's a place for everyone. There always, there, there usually is. One of the things we have to look at is um, the technical debt that gets left behind. Number one, and number two, the talent the, or the war for talent that's going on out there. So when you bring in uh, platforms like Instand and others that are all low code and no code, you're actually giving the businesses more flexibility to launch these things in a product speed to market way that will allow you to test and learn. And then shut down if they, if they don't work you know, on, a, on a quicker basis rather than spending nine to 12 months getting something out there and then realizing later that it was the wrong thing to do or not moving fast enough. So I think uh, I look at my, my 13-year-old son as he does this. He now codes using visual coding on Scratch as an example. And he's just come back from Dallas in a robotics competition. And all that's done through visual coding so that people can very quickly build together jigsaw pieces and blocks of code to get things done. And that's in a world championship. So I actually see it as a way of getting more people to, uh, or, or more available people to help out and get this stuff done inside the business, rather than relying on a small pool of talent that's already under a significant crunch. I think, John, you were, you were comparing two huge names to some, something like Constander and What we need to realize is that using large core systems companies like this is actually not quick. Like they will celebrate how their fastest implementations are between four and six months, mm. right? And in, in four months, we've completely reinvented our proposition at Flock, for example, right? So I believe um, that team and company, and, and he can probably chip in, really have a differentiated value proposition here. I'm, I'm sure that they're not for everyone. Sorry, Tim. Um, but, but we don't need to say sorry. I'm going to come back to it. We're not. And, 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 and um, I think just echoing Nigel's point, I think the, the, the premise of what we're about was actually three or four years ago, it was primarily on speed to market and getting your products out and, and increasingly where I think insurance is. I mean, if we take, take as an example, a segment like MGAs, Some would argue they are, I'm not saying, but, but some would argue MGAs are at the forefront of pioneering in insurance because they come to market with a very personalized proposition, very targeted on a segment. It's a lean operating model. They get underwriting capability and they actually are able to grow. Now, not all MGAs are successful, of course, but many of them are. And MGAs look at technology um, to, to run their businesses and there is very few options around. They can't go to, as you said, Um, Anton, you can't go to the bigger systems because their economics, given they're a lean operating model, won't allow them to consume old, older legacy, which where you're having to make change via code, which is very expensive and time consuming and can't be done by anybody other than the supplier. And so that cost profile goes up, the speed goes down. And so MGAs are a big segment of our, of our target customer base because they are, um, they are at the forefront of what a lean operating model should be for insurance. And therefore they need the technology that is you know, reciprocal and commensurate with that kind of operating model. And that's exactly what Instander offers. But you're actually right, Anton. There's no way that, I don't know, let's take a, a large insurer in the States. I don't know, State Farm would turn around to us and say, you know, we've got a five billion book in motor. It's across all states. We're going to move uh, off guide, well, whatever they're on, um, onto Instander to, to do that tomorrow, next week, next year, or even in the next two or three years. Um, maybe in the medium term, there'll be a different answer to that question. But right now in the near term, no, there isn't. And we're not targeting that either. Um, I think 
the big difference the funding has made for us, and this is a pertinent point because there's, I think there's a, you know, there's an argument about where do we stand relative to some of the incumbents. Well, one, our philosophical design premise is fundamentally different. We're cloud, we're SaaS, we're one code base. We can make changes on the code base. We do that every few weeks. Most of the legacy providers make changes once a year if they're lucky. So there's a very different philosophical design principle. But then the segments we're targeting are, you know, it's about the right fit for economics and that speed and agility that I talked about. And where we've come from is really much, very much around this product innovation. But now, you know, good, I'd say 50% of our clients use us as their core platform, right? And and inexorably, as we uh, provide, you know, better features, then those larger clients will come onto our platform because the TCO is attractive, the speed and flexibility is there, and it then becomes an economically and operationally compelling argument. And the funding that we've now just got removes one of the reasons why we've lost deals in the last 12 months, for example. And one of the reasons we lost deals is because incumbents, carriers, large carriers have said to us, we love your technology. It's brilliant. It puts the power in our hands. You know, the whole concept of citizen developer that Microsoft has been promoting for the last few years in the Azure marketplace, that's what we want. We want to be able to react to our uh, market, but you're just not a big enough company. Your balance sheet's not strong enough. Uh, you haven't, you know, we don't know whether you're going to be around for the next few years. And, you know, you are our core platform. So I'm sorry, but we're going to have to take something that's antiquated and 20 years old. And, you know, TCO is very high because we just think that they've got a stronger balance sheet, more track record. So one of the unlockings, and it's the case with any kind of core platform that is used at scale in sizable enterprises, they want to know that the supply is secure. And, and for us, the funding has opened that up dramatically. So I expect us to be walking into some boardrooms that previously we may, may they may have wanted to, but wouldn't have invited us in because of just that fact alone. But I'm, I'm clearly echo your point, Anton and Nigel, you know, that democratization of technology, it's an inexorable drive in multiple industries. It's not just insurance, right? And so we've got to put the technology in the hands of those people that are at the front line, making the pricing decisions, making the decisions around data enrichment, making the decisions about how they want to distribute. And they've got to be in charge because they're the ones that know best, frankly. No, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think I think it's a great story and I hope it does open doors. I'm going to come to Ruth just quickly on this one before we move on to the next topic. I mean, is, is the idea of, I mean, we talked a lot about there about speed to market and agility and getting out early. Do you think that is the differentiator in insurance that these platforms offer? And, and that is what separates from, say, the incumbents or allows you to move at that pace? Um, I guess it's one of the differentiators. I would say, you know, and one of the things we'll talk about, I think, uh, today in today's show is really kind of the state of InsurTech historically and generally. I mean, we're talking about infrastructure, which is antiquated in insurance companies. We're talking about really, you know, quite inefficient and not technology-enriched uh, operating models. And so in some ways, you know, there are a lot of questions about if uh, certain business models are sustainable. You know, this infrastructure is, of course, going to be replaced. The idea that we will be doing business in 50 years the way we're doing it today, or even in 10 years the way we're doing it today, maybe even five years, is not realistic. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of um, insurance executives that have issues uh, like the ones that 
that Tim mentioned, you know, that the, the company isn't secure enough or there aren't tiered access rights or, you know, we want all these things in our procurement checklist and you weren't able to check all the boxes. Um, at the same time, you know, technology adoption is going to persist. And I, I think it's less, you know, only speed to market, but it's really the ability to take advantage of vast amounts of data that are being collected in a contemporary way, you know, the ability to sort of meet customers where they are, you know, the, the core infrastructure of the industry will need to be refreshed and is being refreshed. And this is the value proposition of technology startups that focus on infrastructure. Uh, I think Ruth makes a really good point because there's one of the inexorable changes and flows within insurance is to become more retail-like. And when you look at genuine online retail and the dynamics that that works to, it's taking real-time data and insights and it's making changes to the customer prop, whether that's a proposition or whether it's moving simple things like questions around, whether it's changing the, the CX in different dimensions. And not all lines of insurance will go that way, but inexorably, a lot more of it will. And I agree with Ruth in terms of the infrastructure needs to be refreshed. And that increasing drive, what goes with that, and, and I think you've talked about it on one of your previous podcasts, is personalization, that ability to contextualize the proposition to be moving more towards prevention than just the cure and through a claim. But that whole personalization process requires that data capture, that insight generation, and that, that changing in behavior in terms of what you offer that customer. And therefore, fundamentally, it's inevitable that the technology that underpins that and we're not everything to everybody, of course we're not, but the technology that underpins that has to be democratized, accessible, and as close to real time as you can get it. And therefore, whether it's the speed of taking a product to market or whether it's the speed of change from the, the feedback you're getting from the data and insights, that's the those are the fundamental drivers of what's going to create value and, and create those success companies in the future. I have one more quick question, actually, Ruth, for you. That's around... I've been following following the standards, and there's there's a whole host of organisations in this space for quite a few years. I've had loads of fun with it, but there's also quite a lot of organisations in this space. And you've done a lot of work in the technology space, obviously for insurtechs. How do you, how do you go about evaluating core providers like Instander or otherwise? And do you think there's going to be one global winner, or is it going to be individual geos? Or how do you make that dip, that that spread between the different types of companies that are out there doing this. It's just crowded, I think. Yeah, it's crowded. And it's, as with all sort of infrastructure selling into financial institutions, the challenge is really uh, kind of sales cycles and the ability to demonstrate what we would traditionally think of as venture backable growth in a time frame which is which is reasonable, in, which is venture backable. Um, I think we, you know, my suspicion, and I'm not totally answering your question, I apologize, is that we are going to see some really interesting acquisitions play out in this space over the next, the near term. You know, as the venture ecosystem becomes slightly more judicious and, and perhaps a bit more capital constrained, uh, I think that there are going to be teams um, who want to find a soft landing and, and have built something really interesting and valuable and will find that soft landing or that home inside a larger organization, uh, be it a Guidewire or a Duck Creek or an insurance company, or, uh, or in fact, in, you know, within um, the context of another startup. This is a tough space. I think that there will be several that break away from the pack. 
Um, they might find, uh, you know, strength and force from some other large infrastructure providers helping them to, um, to scale. But, you know, as with anything, I mean, there are a few uh, large infrastructure providers, but competition is necessary. I don't believe that it's a winner-takes-all scenario. I think there's, a, there's a, maybe a sidebar note, and Ruth, I I, just to be a little bit provocative, I think inherently there's a systemic clash between venture capital and infrastructure, and particularly B2B and core applications. I, I think the return expectation and the duration of that return, the tenure of return, I think is really... It's, it's an interesting, I can only give you the anecdotal, our perspective on it, but it's interesting the, the nature of the capital, but let's talk pre-collapse and the expectations of returns and the growth rates when you're dealing with core applications and the kind of, like you, you hinted at it, the sales cycle and the buying process. But there is a bit of a clash between venture capital and infrastructure assets, which maybe is a podcast for another time. Not I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to move us on, Tim, but I think that's a, an interesting question to leave hanging and one we could potentially bring back to another show. On to the second story of today, and quite an interesting one. Insurance startups face credibility crisis in brutal tech road. So this is from the Financial Times. So shares in Lemonade, which provide renters insurance and the other personal cover, are down nearly 90% since peaking last year and are now more than a quarter below their IPO price. So Lemonade, along with Hippo and Root, are among the biggest casualties of a brutal route in tech stocks as rising interest rates prompt investors to ditch high-growth companies. As fears, are, as fears of a downturn in the US economy grows, it is InsureTech's core underwriting, the price at which they are prepared to underwrite customers' risks that is under focus and scrutiny from analysts and investors. As the tech rally threatens to unravel further, InsureTech must now convince a sceptical market that their business models are worth sticking with. I'm going to come to you first, Ruth, because actually we've got a great quote from you here. I believe you contributed to this article that um, told the FT that InsureTech's early valuations were driven by a hype cycle that has not withstood scrutiny. I'd love to just get a bit more of an in-depth on your thoughts for the Financial Times, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's what's so much fun about media briefings is that they last an hour, but then, you know. They live forever. They get to use whatever <laughs> sentence they want, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I, I, you know, I that is certainly part of what we talked about and uh, an important part. And I and it, not in the entire story. What was really difficult for me about the day that that piece was published in the Financial Times was that it was simultaneous with one of my portfolio companies, Branch, announcing its $147 million raise. And so, um, you know, it, it made me look slightly schizophrenic to anyone who was paying attention. I, you know, I think that what's been really interesting for me as someone who's been around the insurance industry for a long time and investing in insurtech for a long time is certainly the maturation and the sort of successive waves of insurance uh, startups that have launched. Uh, I was, you know, full disclosure, uh, an early investor in Lemonade. Um, I think it's a super interesting company. The article makes it look like Daniel Schreiber and I are having a conversation and sort of a debate, which is which is great and and um, and funny. But I think that what has happened, and I wouldn't lump all of the uh, insure tech startups in the same box, although they are all trading below their IPO prices. I would say also that these insure tech startups have been a bellwether. There are many, many fintech companies and indeed tech stocks that are are down very substantially. So. You know, it is interesting to think about from the intratech perspective, you know, did these companies go public too early? Was there really a lack of sufficient scale to justify 
public market scrutiny. Were the unit economics of, of the companies really sustainable uh, at all? I don't think it's the end of the story, you know, by any means. And, and I think that we'll see different outcomes for, for different companies. What I have become really interested in is, you know, as generally uh, venture capital investors are sort of all uh, vaunting their movement from kind of growth at any cost to path to profitability, you know, there are some super interesting full stack insurance companies that have been built to pay attention to things like loss ratio and combined ratio um, from the very beginning. And, you know, what my kind of thesis, uh, as I was speaking to the journalist who, who wrote this article was, you know, companies like Branch, um, companies like Flock, you know, companies that are really built to pay attention and use technology to more efficiently acquire customers and also um, assess risk are going to be in a great position to capitalize on this incredibly large addressable market, which is what got early investors really excited about InsurTech. The insurance industry is a really old industry with really archaic technology and a really archaic approach to things which we can do much better now, like risk assessment and analyzing data. And I think that it felt really natural to point a lot of contemporary technology uh, at this very large industry with its compulsory products. And, you know, it's also a really important, socially impactful function in our society and our economy. And I think that those early impulses were really good. I also think that venture capital investors are by and large pretty smart and they're a quick study. And, you know, even generalist investors who were previously investing in InsureTech and didn't know that much about loss ratios or combined ratios or any of those things have really, you know, educated themselves as well. So I think that the there is an evolution happening. You know, we're, we're living through a very interesting macroeconomic moment. We are experiencing volatility. There is massive price discovery happening up and down the economic stack, you know, from, from crypto to publicly traded U.S. equities to bonds to everything. And so, you know, whether or not this price discovery experience is going to kill both public, publicly traded companies and, and private companies, um, you know, is, I guess, uh, to be seen. We certainly get to find out. But um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot more education generally in the industry, and there's still a lot of really important change to be made. So I am personally continuing to invest, and I continue to remain very, very optimistic about the sector. No, that's good. And, and, and I, I think I, I agree. I think there's so much change and so much opportunity within the industry that there is space. Um, I'll pass over to you, Anton. As, I mean, should Lemonade be concerned about this drop in share price? And also as a, as a fellow insurtech, are you concerned, I guess, about this level of capital within the market and the level of investment at the moment? So it would be folly not to be concerned. I think we, we have to monitor this very, very closely. Um, as Lemonade, I would be concerned because I think the disadvantage they've got in a way, which has been their advantage, is that they're one of the first. They're one of the first floating onto the public market. And the public market is, is looking at them in a very different way to uh, how we would have looked at a very mature 
insurance company floating into the market, but also very different to how we've looked at Google when they floated into into the the public market. So I think I think they need to monitor this closely, and I think they've got a bit of a tough job to really reading the situation and, and trying to come back up to where they hoped to be. For us, I think th- there are many, many positives at the back of this, right? Like, A, these guys are teaching the market about what we do. Uh, some of their mistakes are mistakes we learn a lot from. And for us, Lemonade, Metro Mile, there are many, many examples out there, tried to do everything and tried to reinvent everything end to end. When I think the more mature, slightly later additions to introduce specs, like Flockies, for example, have tried to focus in specific parts of the whole. And do, do you think theirs was an? Uh, you know, we, we talked earlier. Like Ruth mentioned was was a customer growth strategy. Everything was about customer growth, and as opposed to sensible economics or more stable economics. I mean, not Nigel. Maybe that's one that you could answer. I'm sitting here listening to the, the, the debate, actually, and to Anton's point about tough, I think any business that you do in this day and age, or even in, even in the boom times, is tough, right? And we're not going to disrupt a centuries-old industry that people don't necessarily love at the outset overnight. And I think Daniel and Shai and the team have done a really good job at going after the low-hanging fruit of it's a horrible user experience. And full disclosure too, I am now a full-on Lemonade customer. I tweeted the other day, I went through the process flow and it was beautiful. And at the end of it, I still get a 46-page PDF document with my policy that I promise you I have not read and I will never read it, sorry. Um, so we still can't address some of the things of old that are causing this issue. And I know exactly why it's there and why it has to be there. So we're still painting lipstick on the old stuff that's there and making it easier to acquire and whatever else. These things are going to uh, are going to take time, and I, I go back to all the commentary about the article that we've seen over the last couple of, of weeks. This is a long term game, no matter what we do. Um, my worry on things like this is: are we building businesses or are we building features? And what I say about that was, I give you an example of the fintech space. People talked about Monzo's and Starling's ability to freeze a card really quickly. I mean, that really cool. And everyone's going, "Oh look, you can freeze a card." I can guarantee mum, my 77-year-old mum, doesn't care a bit about freezing her card and doesn't mind waiting the six months it takes one of the legacy banks to go and do it. So my point about are we building a feature that someone else can copy in six months' time and that's good enough, or are we racing ahead to the next generation that needs this sort of stuff right now? And that's the bit I'm more worried about. I think with the likes of core infrastructure like Tim's got and others and what Lemonade have done from what they've learned about chatbots and flows – what they bring to the table is the agility and speed that will hopefully allow us to move into these places as these demands come up, as opposed to taking six to nine months to do it. We still make sure there's enough value in, in that period, I think. Nigel, but let me double click on something you said there. You were praising their beautiful onboarding process, but that, it was that nice. is almost... It, the, the end wasn't. But that, that is almost a feature, right? And I think the strategy these companies have followed is the strategy of growing, 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 and then trying to figure out how to, to use a technical term, clean the book, right? Oh, don't worry, we'll bring these loss ratios back down. And the truth is that it is bloody hard to do it that way, right? There, there's some that succeed, but they succeed bringing a 110% loss ratio down to a 98% loss ratio, not a 150 something, which I think is what Lemonade are running down to 100, right? So uh, I, I question their strategy. 
and I, I want to monitor this closely to see what happens. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and this is definitely something that we pay a ton of attention to with our portfolio companies. It most certainly is difficult to correct things um, like a high loss ratio, and there's so much risk associated with, you know, alienating your risk capacity providers and your reinsurance providers, and you know, there's there's a lot of risk there. I would say one thing that Lemonade did that drove the insurance industry absolutely nuts is they built a brand, and it's not. You know, it, it, yes, technology supported their ability to do that, but ultimately, you know, there's such a high, there's a hundred percent correlation in mature markets between premium and and ad spending. And you know, here's this company that's coming in and certainly spending a lot on building the brand, but able to do it. And you know, that's that's no small thing. Um, What's really exciting about some of the companies that we're looking at and most excited about now are that they're really cracking the customer acquisition challenge. And this is, you know, something that the insurance industry is highly conscious of at the incumbent level. You know, you have these really commoditized products in a soft market. Um, How other than paying for customers and paying high prices for customers, are you going to acquire them? And so there's certainly this kind of brand dimension to that, but there are also technology dimensions too. And we're starting to really get excited about, you know, this real true embedded propositions um, that really sit inside user flows, thanks to API technology and other, other, you know, ways of embedding products in, you know, relevant experiences. I just think that, you know, as you said, Anton, their Lemonade was kind of first and there's a lot to learn from them. And I think that they also will benefit from the ability to learn uh, from some of these fast followers. And, you know, the race isn't over. Just to put the counterpoint, a couple of observations, a few observations. Uh, I was not an advocate or a fan of Lemonade when it was launched. I think it was uh, the team were making some great observations about insurance in the sense that the model wasn't, you know, the trust levels were low, that the execution and the experience could be improved, but fundamentally, could they generate massive brand loyalty across a product which is fundamentally commoditized, I think is the big question. And I think that's separate from the question that we've been, that the capital markets are asking of insurtechs right now, which is that valuations are massively overinflated and the fundamental business models just backing revenue is not a sustainable model and and you know the markets have run away you know withdrawn capital to that but i think those that the, the point you made earlier ruth is is the fundamental one which is within the insurance space there is huge opportunities for improvement right and the lemonade got that right as the call out for call to action how you go about executing to find those pockets of value and release them and improve the customer experience and become much more efficient because let's not forget Again, McKinsey have done plenty of analysis around this. The biggest cost item within carriers is operational cost and IT, right? So there are massive pockets of value where you can take out, let alone from all the customer improvement. And we can see tremendous value can be created from moving towards more prevention and actually creating increased amounts of personalization where you're connecting with the customer in a more meaningful way. So I think the fundamentals are the industry itself is definitely trying itself. There are also uh, new innovations coming in constantly to try and unlock and create more value. I think there's a the 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 point about the capital markets. They're just saying that the valuations that were applied to some of those innovators was stratospheric and not sustainable. 
and yeah. and I you know I'll declare my I'll declare my veteran nature. I was first a technology leader in the late nineties, right? When I saw yeah. the dot com eighteen nineties, <laughs> that's like <laughs> I I, that would be like Dorian Gray with my portrait in the attic, right? I mean, you know, I'd have to I'm be gonna, like I get I get to stop us there. It's, it's it's a great debate. To be honest, we could spend the rest of the show on this topic alone. Yeah, um, but we do need to go to a quick break, and then we'll get on with the second half of the show. I'm back very soon. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up on the funding theme, even though we're worrying about funds and market conditions, is Ulife. And Ulife picks up $120 million at an $800 million valuation for gamified wellness-focused life insurance. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations to Sammy, Jonathan, uh, and the entire team at Ulife. Uh, another one of my favorites here. So InsurTech Ulife has raised $120 million in Series C, to ramp up global expansion and scale its product range. Through its app, Ulife customers are rewarded with U-Coins, a digital token for taking part in wellness activities. These coins can be then be spent on gifts to charity or planting trees. Founded in 2016, London headquartered company provides approximately £40 billion of cover to some 500,000 policyholders at businesses large and small. The Series C funding was led by Daiichi Life Insurance Company and brings the total funding to date to $206 million. Um, Ruth, I'll come back to you if you don't mind. Is gamification the future of insurance? We've talked about gamification for donkeys, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Is it the future? It depends. I mean, I think Ulife is, uh, first of all, another Anthemist portfolio company, so definitely celebrating, uh, celebrating that. We... You know, I think they're doing it really well. I think gamification can be really dumb. And uh, I think that what we see is that the product and the business line lend itself to gamification. Nigel, I'm sure that you can attest to that. I know that you're a a very gamified soul when it comes to athletics. And so, you know, I don't think gamification is necessarily the future. I think that these guys have acted on the insight that, People want more from their coverage and can be influenced by, you know, various observations about their health and their wellness and their behaviors. And it's just really working, which is amazing. I, I have to say, I love, back to brand, you talked about Lemonade building a brand. I think you like to have an amazing job of building a brand. I, I sent a note to the to the guy saying congratulations to the tallest giraffes in town, which is odd because they're not actually tall, the folks. But there we go. Um, but I, I love what they've done there, and I'm actually I'm also a user of the Ulife platform, and I've done a number of jewels and whatever else with the team. It's really cool. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about, and, and maybe one for you, Anton and Tim, is gamification seems to work in the startup space, but equally, folks like Aviva have tried this before. They hired a bunch of folks that were in the game space into the garage to do things in the traditional insurance. Is there a difference doing this in a large corporate team as opposed to doing this as an insure tech, do you think? I think it is. I think 
we've got we as insurtechs have the ability to experiment more, be closer to customers. The model I think is really important. As a carrier, you're slightly more detached from the customer as an MGA, as a broker, you can be closer to a customer, put something in their hands, iterate very, very quickly. Uh, so there is a world where the incumbents manage to get rid of the challenges they've got, but at the moment I think startups do have a um, an unfair advantage when building products that are slightly more innovative and built on customer behavior, customer needs, because we're simply closer to them. Do you think there's a um, a COVID bounce on this? And what I mean by that is um, health and well-being is very much been a focus for many over the COVID lockdown, where we've been able to, if you're fortunate enough, be able to take care of our health and focus it a bit more. Does the same apply to driving or your house or whatever else? Tim, have you got a view on that? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good segue into um, you know my my observation around this is that I, I agree with Ruth. I think gamification it depends. Um, you've got to be careful with where that's applied. But you know one one could say gamification slash personalization because you look at the U Life proposition, it's just giving people freedom to make more choice around some of the things that they value and want. But that's on top of a much more psychologically intimate insurance purchase right, which is about doing things to protect your life and health. And you contrast that with a home or motor, which in general is a legal requirement, depending on the country you're in. And the ratio of claims that you make is probably maybe the average is one in 10 years, could be less, could be more, depending on your neighborhood and the kind of the way you drive. Obviously, there's different groups. But the, the, the psychological relationship that you have with a commoditized product like home and motor is very fundamentally different to I am thinking about protecting my well-being looking after myself my family and that psychological bond is then just you're just starting from a very different premise which is why a lot of life and health insurance I think it's interesting that in the last 10-15 years it's had declining rates of take up particularly in certain socio-economic and and age groups but to your point uh, Nigel the pandemic was totally indiscriminate it was like everybody had somebody that they knew or were related to that had maybe been affected and in large part there was a fear factor that went around globally to say you could be at risk of having some serious outcome from catching covid so suddenly you're putting to the forefront of people's minds and you're locked at home with not a lot else to do <laughs> but to think about you know yeah. am i okay i mean you know a lot of navel gazing a lot of navel gazing a lot of you know yeah. you go to the supermarket you wipe your food from the supermarket with wipes i was hearing people telling me you know it's it it brought that particular product and uh you know right into the forefront of mind and then as i say there is that uh, psychological intimacy connection around this is a meaningful thing for me because it's going to make a difference to how I think about my life and that whole concept of insurance around peace of mind security those fundamentals in which insurance is built on I think come so much to the forefront when you're talking about that and congratulations to you life for really taking full advantage of that wave during the last three years and you know the team deserve all the all the all the kudos back to our Strava analogy that they can get because, you know, they've done a great job on execution. I mean, we're working, we're working with another company that's got a similar, well, it's not the same, but it's, 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 it's providing people with incentives to look after themselves better. And they're one of the global leaders in it. And, and I think, again, that's just back to this premise of, I mean, Nigel, you're a, I think, what did you call him, Ruth? Uh, a gamified 
on game of something. Sorry, I was I was trying to find the very polite way of saying it. But but you know, um, I think people do want to be looking after themselves. They do. You know, we're all aware. There's so much more information around the things that are affecting morbidity or not. And so I think the issue for the life and health companies is how do you unlock that? How do you untap it? How do you personalize? And a new life is a great example of a company that's doing that. I think there's a macro trend here that new uh, life is definitely part of, and then there have been tailwinds with COVID and and this transition towards well-being, right? And this macro trend is how many insurance products are starting to do way more than just cover the risk, right? That risk transfer concept we we love talking about. This these insurance policies are starting to help you be safer, help you be healthier in this case, work in having less claims, right? We at Vlog are an example of that. You Life is an example of that. Team, the example you gave is probably very aligned to that. Depending on the space you're operating in, the a, a coin, the U coin, or gamifying it might, might be the best tactic to reduce that claim. If you're operating in a more B2B space, which is our space, and you're really selling it to a CFO, the best tactic will probably be a financial incentive, right? So I think I think it is a great use case of how we're starting to offer a number of products that don't just transfer that risk to a balance sheet, but also help you have less claims. Yeah, and I think I mean we've we've had a sh- we've had shows recently on on ESG, and I think from everything we talked at the very start about you know prevention insurance having a social narrative and then ESG. And I think more and more people are trying to find ways, to your point, that is not just risk. How do we how do we latch on to the kind of the, the social, the prevention or do more uh, from an ESG perspective to actually offer these products and services so people feel like they're getting value for money or they're getting more than something, to your point, Tim, if you don't claim for 10 years, I've actually got some value over those 10 years when I didn't claim. And I think... That's really important. The other point is, we talked about COVID and the tailwinds, and I think it was shone a spotlight not just on the health, but also what are you paying for? So you look at by miles and, you know, cars parked on people's drives during COVID. They had huge success in terms of, well, don't pay for what you're not using. So I think all these products and services are going beyond what used to be that kind of annualized 12-month policy. And actually, where can we be inventive in terms of, you pay for what you use or we offer you value. It's really interesting because actually watching the gazillions of TV adverts on insurance in the US, Liberty Mutual's continuous campaign, which I love, by the way, is pay for what you need. So I find that really fascinating about the messaging that's coming out from an incumbent that's got a wonderful marketing campaign around it. One quick question before we wrap, and actually, Ruth, for you, given that you've got broad view over both, I guess, is is What's the difference between the B2B versus B2C? Because you, like, like others, are on the B2B side rather than the B2C in terms of a, a lemonade or otherwise. Have you got a perspective on which one is better? I mean, better is the wrong really word to use, but have you got a perspective on B2B versus B2C right now? Um, I think that the market is probably shifting back more to a B2B focus and feeling like, you know, as we move away from... PPC and thinking about, you know, direct to consumer advertising as really trying to understand, you know, what com- what's a viable company, which is what's a viable company as long as it has a lot of venture capital dollars to throw into customer acquisition. You know, there just are these trends. In venture capital, it's, it's a game of exceptions. So 
you know, exceptional companies win. It's very difficult to make rules. I don't make rules. And whenever I do, I always immediately break them. But I think that we're probably moving back into uh, an environment where B2B feels a little bit more attractive generally to investors, is my sense. It's always the picks and shovels. To sell the picks and shovels, not the actual gold mine that you live with. And I've, I've often found that enabling space to be much more, I don't want to say fruitful, but much more. Well, welcome to my world, Nigel. Yeah, well, I, I, I know. Well, I know. Before I hand back to John, look, I've got proof on the screen for everyone that can't see the U Life leaderboard. And I'm not going to say who's on top, but it's me. <coughs> John, back to you. <laughs> Thank you for that, Nigel. It's so comforting. Competitive soul. I don't know what you did to, to get that. Anyway. And finally, um, final story of the week. If it was April the 1st, this story would still surprise me, but it's not. And Geico may have to pay $5.2 million to a woman who got an STD in an insured car. The story from NPR. So the Missouri Court of Appeals is siding with a woman who won $5.2 million award against Geico in a case of unique auto injury claim. The woman known as Monica M.O. in the court documents says she contracted a sexually transmitted disease in a Hyundai Sian whose owner was insured by Geico. The unidentified woman said the man infected her with the HPV when they had unprotected sex in his 2014 Hyundai Genesis. The man was negligent because he didn't tell her about the health diagnosis. Geico had told the woman its auto insurance coverage didn't apply because the damages claimed did not arise out of normal use of vehicle. Wow. I'm going to start with you, Nigel, purely because I remember this hit your LinkedIn. I think it was your LinkedIn or Twitter, and it caused a landslide of comments. Um, So over to you. (laughs) I, I have no words. Even on the 1st of April, I have no words. I think if anyone wants to realize why insurance is hard, the disrupting old industry is hard, you have, I spent like a moment, you've nailed it on the head. Let's leave it there. It's, um, it's just a difficult industry. And this is one of the very uh, rare, but non weird exceptions that insurers have to deal with day in, day out. And it's a huge claim. And if you go through the litigation process in the U S and what they have to do to, to solve this, it's just complicated. So, I can't ever imagine this hitting the Daily Mail or otherwise in the UK. It will end up with another page being added to a policy somewhere, I'm sure. But nothing ever surprises me in insurance anymore. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, we talk about pandemic cover and insurers are removing pandemic cover after what happened with COVID. Um, you know, do you think this will make the small print? <laughs> STD cover? <laughs> I think that, you know, as the daughter of a personal injury lawyer, even this one, you know, I found this surprising. I think that probably Nigel's responses demonstrate what was so attractive to the jury about this reward, which was all of the opportunity in in the jury room for a double entendre and, you know, funny jokes. But in seriousness, it's nice to talk about sexuality on the show during a time when the U.S. Supreme Court has you know, robbed many American women of basic human rights and privacy. So thank you for bringing it to us, Nigel, via Twitter. Let's not hope, we, get, let's not hope we pass this one round, though. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even... You know, I, I, I wonder, could, could, from an insurance perspective, could this only happen in the US? Or do you, do you think... Yeah, probably. I mean, everybody's got insurance contracts... I mean, could this ever happen anywhere else? I mean, I know the small print of every insurance contract is kind of binding, but 
is this a US specific thing? No, I think if you, if you, <laughs> I did take a few minutes to Google um, strange insurance claims. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't Google STD. Uh, no, I didn't. Otherwise, that would have come up in my browser history. And we have <laughs> we have web monitoring for all employees, including the CEO and co-founder. So, uh, um, you know, there are plenty of strange edge cases where I think there was a horse mistook a car for a mate. Um, and um, there's a number of, you know, similar cases where payouts have been made for situations that you probably most people wouldn't even be able to dream about. Um, uh, so I think you're always going to get situations that, you know, don't let's forget Lloyds of London, 25 billion pounds worth of insurance was designed for uh, cases that nobody else would take on. So you never know. It may be true that if this becomes, uh, you know, more widespread, excuse the pun again, that um, uh, there may well be a case for a syndicate somewhere in London to uh, position itself as a specialist in Hyundai STD uh, litigation cases. You, you one never knows. I mean, you know, that this is the beauty of insurance. It's it spreads far and wide again, excuse the pun. Um, and um, you know, we, we, we are very creative as an industry. You've got that on the call with the innovators. You've got Lloyds of London set up to do that. And uh, and then you've got the US market, which is very, very, you know, it's got a legalistic part to it. As Ruth said, her, you know, she's got experience from her father that where cases like this can be claims of 5.2 million can be made. It's a remarkable world we live in. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that um, we're able to debate this in all seriousness on this kind of podcast. It's the home insurers I worry about. <laughs> But <laughs> moving swiftly along in second gear, stall starts. <laughs> right, I think I'm going to draw a close. That wraps up uh, the news for this time. So, finally, where can our listeners find out more about you? So, firstly, Ruth. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Fox News. That's F O X E underscore news. I don't know whether you're being serious or not there. I'm going to jump to Anton. You can find me on Twitter also at Anton with a double T, -T A-N-T-T-O-N-P. Anton P, that is. Thank you. And Tim? Uh, I'm going to be asking formally for Nigel's mentoring because I don't, I am on Twitter, but I don't tweet. So I'm going to get some coaching lessons from Nigel and um, and then you'll be able to find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn, but uh, again, I probably need some help and advice on that. I've just been so focused on building one of the world's best no-code digital core platforms that I've been a bit remiss on social media. We'll let you off, Tim. <laughs> we'll let you off. Someone who hasn't. Nigel, where can we find you? Uh, what, running around tracks of Central Park uh, on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Fantastic. And finally, you can find me at LinkedIn or you can find me through the 11FS website. Thanks to all of my guests and thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider, or you can find us on Twitter at InsTechInsiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, it was a fun one. Thank you very much and goodbye.